When someone famous dies, their obituary glowingly outlines the successes, the accomplishments, the great good that that person did during a lifetime. But occasionally, there's something darker in that story. At some point along the way, this person made a huge blunder, something so wrong that at first it was difficult for those who admired this person to accept. So maybe it's a politician or an actor or a business leader or even a pastor. And perhaps you remember the first time that you heard about those mistakes and knew immediately that that person would never be able to live it down. And sure, sometimes, even years and even decades later, the sordid episode is right there in the obituary, sometimes at the end of the first sentence. Once a sterling image is tarnished, that episode can never be untold. We've been looking at the second chapter of David's life, from the time he became king of Judah, then king of Israel, all of Israel, a 20-year or so period where David had a string of unbroken success. But as many of you know, David is one of those famous people who fails so spectacularly that he is forever known as much by just a few weeks of, of mistakes as he is by decades of virtuous behavior. The narrator in 2 Samuel gives two whole chapters to this episode. It would take us nearly 10 minutes just to read all the words. So I'm going to do some summarizing, and some of the key phrases will be on the screen. In other cases, I'll just be able to paraphrase it. But if you'd like to follow along with the story, in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, you can find it in the Pew Bible on page 439, page 439. And I'm going to be beginning reading with verse 1. The narrator begins the story with what at first appears as a throwaway line. He says, In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, scholars are a little bit divided about what exactly the narrator is intending to communicate. But one way of looking at this is that after years of faithful and effective leadership, David has let down his guard neglected his duty, and without a lot of things to do, not a lot of time on his hands, without anything important, he indulges himself. And that's when things start to go in the wrong direction. In verses 2 to 5, it tells us that in the middle of the night, David woke up, we don't know why, but had some insomnia, whatever, and he headed up onto the roof of the palace where it was cool and nice, and David had a prime piece of real estate up a little higher above everything else so he could get a great view of the city and... His, the homes of his closest neighbors. From there, he sees a beautiful woman. He wakes up an aide and asks about her, and he's told that she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and that should have stopped David in his tracks. Not only is she another man's wife, but she's the wife of one of the very best of his soldiers, but it doesn't. Instead, he sends for her, he takes her, he discards her, sending her home just because he can and it's just as bad as it sounds. Now, some try to place blame with Bathsheba, but culturally, she did not have a choice. David sent an aide to get her. David's behavior here is no better than that of a Hollywood mogul. To him, she's just a woman. And for a month, nothing happens until she sends him word that she's pregnant. And that news rocks David, although he's very quick to respond and begin to shift into cover-up mode. In verses 6 to 13, you see how Good, David is at problem solving, something he's done his entire life. And immediately he orders Joab, the general of it in the field, to send Uriah back to Jerusalem. He expects, hopes Uriah will return home to his wife, and then in that way, everyone will think the child is Uriah's. But Uriah refuses to go home. In fact, that first evening, he spends the night sleeping outside the palace with David's servants. 
The next morning, David asks Uriah why. And Uriah says to David, how can I go home? The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Determined, David tries two more times to get Uriah to go home. He even has him over for dinner, gets him drunk, hoping that will weaken his resolve and he'll go home. But Uriah refuses. At that point, Uriah proves um, that he, uh, it, all this proves is that Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. As it turns out, Uriah's loyalty to David will cost him his life because that's when David shifts into a cynical strategy. His moral sense is so numbed that he no longer is able to discern between good and evil. And so he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with orders, sealed orders, perhaps with a wax seal, to Joab. He has no idea that he's carrying his death sentence. David tells Uriah, or Joab to put Uriah in the thick of the fighting where he will be killed. Joab's the sort that follows orders, doesn't question his commanding officer's judgment. He does what David's asked, then the next day Uriah is killed. And then Joab sends a messenger back to David, tells him the details of the battle, but he reminds the messenger, whatever you do, tell him that Uriah the Hittite is dead. Once Bathsheba learns of her husband's death and the time of mourning was complete, David sent for her and they were married. And what happens here is shocking. Nothing in David's life to this point would suggest that he would ever do what he's done here. He's even capable of it. What began here as a little fling developed quickly into premeditated murder. By the way, that's the way it is with sin. It generally doesn't start full-blown. It starts small and gradually, sometimes relatively innocuously, only later to grow into something darker or more serious. And what it reminds us is that we are one step close, a very one step, short step away from disaster. David sees what he wants, and he takes it just because he can. But before we start piling on against David, let's remember that we are far closer than we care to admit to a similar collapse. At the heart of what happens here is pure and simple, an abuse of power. David uses his position, his popularity, his status to take advantage of someone, in this case, an, an innocent woman. And he knows it. When you're a star, he thinks you can do anything. To be clear, Bathsheba's done nothing improper. It's David who's in the wrong. Even if she were indiscreet, and by the way, I don't believe she was, it still doesn't excuse what David did. Women are never to blame when men behave badly. Sure, St. Paul tells women to dress modestly. Some suggest that Bathsheba was not doing it. We don't know that. In fact, I don't think it's true. But regardless, David is out of line. He broke three at least of the Ten Commandments. He coveted another man's wife, he committed adultery, then killed her husband, and probably lied along the way. What he did was not unusual, though, for kings in that era. They often ignored or violated the law whenever it pleased them. One psychologist I know of says that the definition of arrogance is the belief that the rules that apply to others no longer apply to you. And in David's day, kings made the laws, but they didn't feel bound to keep them. Often, their supporters were only too willing to turn a blind eye to their transgressions. That meant that there was one set of laws for the rich and powerful and another for the poor and powerless. One standard for the king and his close friends and another for the common man or woman. And we need to be careful because sometimes in small and subtle ways, we fall into the same trap. It's sad, isn't it? After 40 years of virtuous living, from the time he was really just a young boy when we meet him first, when Samuel anoints him and predicts that he will one day be king of Israel. David throws all of that away in a fling that lasts an evening 
and then a few weeks of cover-up and proves that he's little better than the run-of-the-mill king, using power not for good but for selfish gain. And so far, it looks like he's getting away with it. And yet, no one's fooled. All of the folks who are close in the palace know what he's done. And more importantly, so does God. That's why the last sentence of chapter 11 is so important. It says, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, this verse could be translated, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. No one's above the law. Even when the systems of power allow the wealthy, the connected, the powerful to get away, literally with adultery and murder, God sees it. And when the sin is secret, God still sees it. So whether we're guilty of adultery or murder or envy or pride or greed or lust, nothing is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. God is not fooled. So what now? What will God do? Will he strike down David dead? Will David actually be held accountable for his actions? Well, the way that God deals with David is through the person of the prophet Nathaniel, or Nathan, excuse me. The simplest definition of a prophet is someone who speaks for God. Prophets are people who know God intimately. They see things the way that God sees them. And when something isn't right, whether it's a sin or a lie or injustice, they speak up. Nathan's role was unique. He worked directly for the king. And that had its pluses and minuses. On the plus side, he had ready access to David. Any time he wanted, he could march into David's office and give him a piece of his mind. The minus is he worked directly for the king. Many, when they get close to power, get corrupted. The Bible rarely speaks positively about court prophets. Far too often, they fell prey to the temptation to tell the boss man what he wanted to hear. Instead of calling out sin and corruption, they hedge and make excuses for the king. And we have court prophets today. Spiritual leaders who, due to a desire to remain close to one power center or another, become tongue-tied, unwilling or unable to call out sin as they see it. But not Nathan. He was willing to call out sin even if it cost him everything and know and understand that when he went to David, he could have lost his life. Nathan had a nearly impossible job, but he chose to confront David anyway, although he did it in a clever way, not directly, but through a story, a story designed to engage David's moral sensibilities. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 12, David at first has no idea what's going on as Nathan begins to tell a story, a story about a rich man who had large herds and sheep and cattle. It's dinner time, he's about to feed his family and an unexpected guest, and he decides to prepare his signature dish, lamb kebabs. And even though he has a large flock of his own, he takes and kills and serves to the guest the only lamb of a nearby neighbor, a very poor man. It was a lamb that this man has been raising since birth, one so dear to him and his family that you can almost call it a pet. And when David hears the story, he's outraged. The narrator tells us that he burned with anger. He tells Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. For the death of one lamb, David pronounces a death penalty on this rich man. And he insists the poor man be repaid double what normally would have been required. Four, not two lambs. Have you ever noticed how we have an almost infinite capacity for self-deception, and yet we are ruthlessly harsh with others when they sin? At this point, David's righteous indignation is in full flower against a man he's never even met. But what David doesn't realize is that Nathan has set him up. He set a trap. And when he drops the hammer, 
Nathan simply says to David, you are the man. Unwittingly, David has condemned himself. Nathan then goes on to scold David in verses 7 to 12. Let me just paraphrase. He says, God's blessed you, David. He's given you great success, and he would give you even more. But because of the evil you've done, there will be consequences. Your family will be torn apart. Violence will come and never quite leave you. For the rest of your life, you'll be reminded daily of what you've done. Now, this will sound counterintuitive, but after what David's done, what Nathan says here is the beginning of some very good news. The Christian story is that all of us are like David. At one point or another, we do something evil, and God says to us, either directly or through the scriptures or through someone else, you are the one. This gotcha isn't for someone else, a boss we're frustrated with, a family member we'd like to put in their, in their place, or the politician that we're angry at. The problem is with each and every one of us. We are the one. It's easy for us to see sin in others, to get worked up about the faults of others near and far. It's easy to accuse, to blame, to moralize, to shake our self-righteous fingers at others until that is a Nathan comes to us and says, you are the one. Nathan didn't pull a punch here. He took a huge risk. He had no idea how David would respond. Frankly, most leaders would have kicked him out the door or worse, but not David. As heinous as the crime is, David listened to Nathan, he accepted what he told him, and he owned up to his sin. And that's why in verse 13, David says simply, I have sinned against the Lord. He saw clearly what moments before he could not. What he said took courage, it took humility, and it really was a turning point in David's life. In six short words, he showed a spiritual sensitivity that few leaders in his day would have had. And paradoxically, there's great hope in what David says. You might say, how? Well, the reason is, is because the good news of the good news story, of God's story, of David's story, of the Jesus story, is that it's only when we come to grips with our failure that we're ready for the good news of a God who wants to forgive us of our sin. Let's talk about how we can live out this story. And I have three suggestions. And the first is to confess and find grace. The message of the Christian story isn't primarily to avoid sin, although over time, we should see sin disappear more and more from our lives. We'll never be free of it. We are sinners. But the good news of the good news story is that when we own up to it, when we are willing to call sin, sin, and stop the denial, the rationalization, the blaming, the evasion, and when we confess our sin and brokenness, it's then that we find grace and mercy and forgiveness that's promised us in the Christian story. Listen to what Nathan says once David confesses. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. Do you hear that? When David saw his sin for what it was, he owned up to it and he found grace. Does David get away with murder, with adultery? No. David's accountable to God for his actions. And as Nathan told him, from that point on, his family's going to be torn apart by betrayal and violence. But God is pleased with David's simple and straightforward confession, I have sinned against the Lord. There's nothing here about mistakes were made. There's no, I'm sorry if I unintentionally hurt anyone. There's just, I have sinned against the Lord. And some of you know how hard that is to do. A few weeks ago, I had lunch with a friend. Um, he has a friend, someone I only know of uh, by reputation, someone who is close to him, who a couple of years ago very publicly failed. But unlike David... This man has, so far, 
refuse to accept responsibility. My friend said to me simply over lunch, he said, for him, the first step is the hardest. It's too bad. Because as enormous as David's sin was, God's grace was even greater. David demonstrates something here that we would be wise to learn from, and that is it's best not to minimize our sin or evade responsibility or cite mitigating circumstances. Instead, own up to it, because the faster we do, the quicker we experience God's grace, his mercy, and forgiveness. So confess and find grace. A second way we can live this out is to learn to forgive. If God shows us grace when we confess as David did, should we not also forgive others? Even when they sin against us, we need to forgive. And yes, repentance needs to be a part of completing the loop, but we have to start the process with offering forgiveness. And that includes public figures. I'm troubled by the way we are so quick to condemn people we do not know, to serve as self-appointed watchdogs and stand in judgment over people we've only heard about. We assume that we know the whole story when we do not. It seems we love seeing people fail more than we love the people who, like us, do fail. We must not celebrate when someone else messes up. It's sad, not a reason to pile on. So confess and find grace, forgive, and the third way we can live this out is to find a Nathan. Maybe you haven't thought about this, but we need people in our lives who can speak truth. Speak truth and call us out when we may be veering off in the wrong direction. It's important to have one or two people at least in your life, wise, godly people who know you and care about you enough to tell you and stop you when you're heading for a cliff. Of course, the question is, will you listen? It's tempting to listen only to those who tell us what we want to hear. I've had people who've come to me for advice. When I tell them something they don't like, they walk out of my office angry. And then I know they're not actually asking for advice. They're just asking for permission. We all need a Nathan, someone willing to say the hard truth. You are the one. One of the most challenging verses in the New Testament to me is James 5.16, which says, confess your sins to one another. It's really hard to do, isn't it? For one, it's not always safe. Sometimes you might tell somebody something and they'll act shocked. And, you know, how in the world could you have failed? So out of self-protection, we hide our sin and act as if everything okay, is okay when in reality we're just hypocrites. Inside, though, we know the truth. We're sinners. We can try to push whatever it is into the dark recesses of our minds to try to pretend there's nothing wrong, but that unconfessed sin never goes away. Until it's brought into the light, we'll never find forgiveness and freedom from guilt. First, we do need to confess our sins to God. And know that when you go to God, you're going to find one who loves you deeply. One who has promised to save you. Sinners that we are. But James also tells us to confess our sins to one another. And I know, that feels like maybe the very last thing you'd ever want to do. But know that the more we keep our sin hidden, the more power it has over our lives. Once it's brought into the light, once you openly acknowledge it, it loses its power. We find new freedom without the weight of sin in our lives. Several years ago, I read James chapter 5, and I was especially convicted. And I realized that I often confess to God, but seldom confess my sins to others. So I decided I needed a confessor. I'm not Catholic, but I thought it sounded like a good idea. And in obedience to James chapter 5, 16, I realized I had lunch scheduled with one of my closest friends in a few weeks. And so I asked him at that lunch if I could confess what I needed, I felt needed to be confessed. It wasn't easy, but it brought relief. And that confessed sin lost much of its power. 
Now, when you read David's story, this story over two chapters, you begin to wonder what's going on in David's mind because the narrator really doesn't give us details. He tells us what David says, he tells us what David does, but he doesn't tell us what David's thinking or feeling. But we do know. And that is because David wrote about his thoughts and feelings in the middle of all of this after Nathan came to him and confronted him with his sin in Psalm 51. So let me read you David's reflections after Nathan had confronted him. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Verse 7, cleanse me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then verse 17, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. I want to be clear about my hopes for today. If you've ever had a moment in your life like David did, a time when you've epically failed, I do not want you to leave feeling hopeless. I am not here to dial up the shame. What you need to understand is that while God does want your obedience, he understands your struggle and he graciously forgives. When we've sinned, one of the devil's tactics is to try to keep us down. He would love to have us wallow in guilt, to think that we're unworthy, stuck forever with plan B, powerless to be used by God. Yes, like David, we need to own up to our sin. And like him, there may be consequences. But you know that Satan would love more than anything else to make you feel hopeless. The great tragedy of sin is not that it happened, but it's when Satan uses it to strip us of any feeling that God loves us and can use us. So don't despair. Just because you fail doesn't mean your life is over. When you sin, you need to hear that every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, is covered by what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. When you confess, you need to know that we have a gracious God who cares enough to listen to your confession, to relieve you of your burden of sin, and understand that when we commit to live our lives for God, he intends to use us. When Satan accuses you, remember what Jesus says. I love you, I'll heal you, I'll use you. Confess what you've done, commit to God with his help not to do it again, and then move on and let God use you, because he will. The good news and the good news story starts with some very bad news. We're not and never were pure. The good news is that from the moment you confess your sins, you are no longer defined by them. You're not even defined by your half-hearted virtues. Instead, you're defined by Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult story. Some of us love heroes, people who do everything right. And David is one of those until this moment when he so epically fails. Father, what he did was... There are no words really to describe how awful what he did was. Even today, we would have difficulty forgiving him for even one of the multiple sins that he committed in this particular episode in his life. And yet, Father, whenever we do sin, we find ourselves in the same position. 
with a broken relationship with you, and we're told to confess that, to confess and receive the forgiveness that you are so free to offer us. Father, we understand that ultimately we need healing, that healing comes through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Father, help us to understand that you forgive, that you want to bring about wholeness and healing in our lives, and you do through what Jesus has done for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.